while the central library programming space is renovated. Yeah. Uh, but the library is still open for public use. We just don't have the pro room and Wheeler Auditorium right now. Um, so before we get started, I wanted to let you know about some upcoming programs. By the way, I'm Tracy Diamond in the Programming and Publications Department. Um, so this week we have, in addition to Dr. Berger's event, we have some great programming. Tomorrow night we have Kevin Sturd reading from his book, Uprising in the City. And then tomorrow night we have Alejandro Genois, who is, uh, his book is The Boys of Dunbar, A Story of Love, Hope, and Basketball. So that will be on Thursday. So they're both at uh, Libraries of the Blind and Christian Handicap at 6.30 p.m. And we have copies of Compass and flyers for other upcoming events on the back table. So before we start, um, the program will be, uh, after I leave, Dr. Goodell will introduce Dr. Berger. We'll present and we'll have a Q&A and then of course the Ivy Bookshop is selling books so please pick up a copy after you enjoy the program. Uh, but now Dr. Goodell is going to come up who is the founder and for nearly 30 years director of the program at Johns Hopkins School of International Relations dealing with the problems of third world countries. So please welcome Dr. Thank you. 
those of us following the media have read about pneumonia. Uh, and um, it's very interesting to me personally how, um, how many of the media have a, what a philosopher might call a naive realism about what pneumonia is. That there's this thing, there's this object, there's, a, there's this entity called pneumonia, which exists to be defined by the magic physician um, or by the media. Um, and the fact that many of the media seem not to recognize that there is an interaction between a person's lived experience and how a disease is defined is fascinating to me. Um, being, as Dr. Goodell so ably pointed out, that we are in the information age and that people have access to information and definitions have of, of things that have to do with information. So it's, as again, it's as if public life has presented this example of things I talk about in this book. So I'm not going to talk about pneumonia anymore right now. Um, I have a number of chapters in my book about various common health conditions. But I'm going to read today a chapter having to do with poverty because, as we all know, health and how people experience health and illness has a lot to do with social determinants of health, how people live, and what constraints and barriers. I'm going to read a chapter from this book. And if you're curious how chapter 3 is, in, is in the, uh, found in the context of the whole book, then I invite you to take the opportunity to acquaint yourself with the whole book. Um, poverty, making decisions, our health system, and you in the middle. Being sick is difficult. The difficulties of illness make other difficulties worse, and vice versa. Poverty both strengthens and complicates this connection between illness and life difficulties. Yes, but you might say, but poverty is not a disease. It modifies diseases. Is poverty really comparable with diabetes, hypertension, cancer, chronic pain, and all the other things you are reading about in this book? I included here because the social determinants of health are not given enough attention in the individual interactions between doctors and patients. Poverty, as a determinant of health, is a focus of broad, deep, and long-term research activity among public health practitioners, but it doesn't get mentioned much when an individual doctor treats an individual patient. How are doctors and patients supposed to approach a societal issue in the context of individual's care? How can they try and improve care in the context of poverty? Poverty is such a many-branched phenomenon tied up with race, education, and health literacy that it might be controversial to address the economic aspect before the other aspects just mentioned. However, I will argue that it's perhaps the most practical approach for an individual patient to improve their care and to direct their doctor to options that matter most to them. This doesn't mean that racial disparities are not vital to care, but their direct repair, though briefly addressed in the last chapter, are on the whole outside the scope of this book. In this chapter, I want to emphasize the potential for our independent decision-making with the help of our doctors in our healthcare encounters. Understand how poverty gets in the way of that decision-making and talk about ways this can be remediated without, of course, immediate infusions of cash, though I do believe in income redistribution, uh, though I won't be doing any of that tonight. <laughs> On the contrary, hopefully it's a negative. Um, 
On the one hand, we know there are many ways in which too much health care is provided in our country's health system. There are too many medication prescriptions written, particularly for antibiotics. That's a reference perhaps to the pneumonia, but I, I didn't have that in mind when I was writing this. Too many laboratory tests done, and too many advanced imaging procedures pursued, all without clear evidence that they actually help. In short, there's overuse, and overuse, of course, costs money. Unfortunately, good care costs money, too. There is an ongoing argument in the scientific literature regarding how care is distributed in the United States. Is the main problem overuse, too much care, or underuse, or, or misuse and underutilization? That is, the right care not given to the right people at the right time. The right answer is probably the latter. A general diagnosis of our health system problems is that we don't get the right treatments to exactly the right person just where and when they need it. And giving too much care is actually a subset of this problem. The naive view would be to say that those people who can't afford, whether through lack of insurance or lack of access, such overcare are actually escaping one of the worst characteristics of the healthcare system, the tendency to overtreat. If we have more access to health care because of the expansion of Medicaid, Obamacare, or finding a job as the economy approves for some, will we be exposed to the worst part of the healthcare system, products and services we don't need? This is a difficult question to answer. It requires interrogating the large literature on health services, that is, whether people get what they need from the healthcare system and at what cost, and engaging in prophecy at the same time about what might happen in the healthcare system in the future. It's clear that more healthcare is not necessarily better, but is some healthcare required and which care? A paper in the Annals of Internal Medicine from 1998 details the connection between access to care, quality of care, and outcomes, that is, results of healthcare. It's difficult but not impossible to come up with an experiment or something like an experiment that shows that access to care can cause improved care. You'd have to find a society which systematically denies care to a sector of the population, then allows that population to have care, and then measures the quality of that health care before and after. Sound familiar to anyone? Conveniently enough, the United States has put that experiment into motion at least twice in recent decades. Medicare enabled previously uninsured people above the age of 65, and it appears that such care decreased mortality. In the second episode, going on even now, the Affordable Care Act provided access to health care for millions of Americans. The assumption, based in part on the previous experience with Medicare, is that such care will lead to decreased mortality and improved health in other areas. I have a number of patients who go in and out of insurance. One of them, Mr. Grunberger, is a 57-year-old man with a complicated medical history. This is the gentleman's real name. He gave me permission to use his real name, and I'll tell him, talk about him a little bit after I read this paragraph about him. He has a complicated medical history, including kidney cancer. He has had one removed. Lung cancer. He has had part of his lung removed. Multiple serious episodes of bleeding and a heart attack. He is one of my most engaging and engaged patients and I admire his ability to pursue his care 
even when he is between jobs. I asked him how he sets priorities and which care or medications he chooses to pursue when he has limited resources. This is a conversation we have been pursuing over multiple visits. And one quote would not do justice to the ins and outs of all his deliberations. To summarize, however, he tells me that he would like to have surgery at some point for the aneurysm in his thoracic aorta that might kill him. But first, first he wants to make sure he has enough money saved up, even given his inconstant employment, to support his wife in case something terrible happens to him during the operation. Now you, in similar circumstances, might choose to prioritize differently. Prioritization, deciding which medicines or treatments to spend money for or take time for, rather than forego, especially when time and resources are limited, might be relevant for everyone reading this, or no matter what your income strata or privileges are. But privilege, as described eloquently by an African-American patient of mine, helps determine what one can or cannot do. And um, many of my patients have Baltimore accents. I don't do accents. You'll have to imagine. Um, um, my mother was a domestic worker. My father worked for Bethlehem Steel. Neither of them had any insurance. He died, and they got insurance, $3,000, $88 a month for her and the kids. She didn't get any Social Security because of who she worked for. Three kids. Imagine if they had gotten sick. They never got sick. We never got sick. I think everyone should get health insurance. Why don't they want them to get health insurance, she asked me. They don't like poor people, I responded. It's not their fault. I think everyone should have it. This patient of mine, when growing up and while raising her family, tried to ensure as much as possible that she would not get sick since she was uninsured. Only recently, with the expansion of care through the Affordable Care Act, has she been able to get some of the care she needs. One response of many of my patients, therefore, to their straightened circumstances is to prioritize care that keeps you, or keeps them, from getting sick in the future. Of all the preventive medicine strategies which doctors have proffered, the most effective might be those which can keep you from getting cancer. Depending on your time availability and your insurance coverage, the following cancer preventive options might most sensibly be prioritized by someone with fewer resources. And I'm going to add a little note here that tests which prevent cancer, by and large, have not been shown to make people live longer. They help people prevent cancer, which for many people is obviously a priority. But sometimes people, doctors and hospitals, which for various reasons want people to get these tests, both for reasons of health and for reasons of revenue, say that these tests keep people living longer, which seems not to be the case. In any case, one of these preventive cancer tests, which I mentioned, is colon cancer screening, that is, tests to prevent colon cancer. While several kinds of these screening tests have been found effective, possibly the most convenient involves testing for amounts of blood, occult blood, undetectable by the human eye, either detected by guaiac or by immunologic techniques. Both of these involve, involve cards and are done at home, rather than a colonoscopy or sigmoidoscopy, which are done in a hospital or clinic setting Involved, involving potential harms and require inconvenient preparation. In addition, many colonoscopies are now accompanied by anesthesia, 
which require the presence of someone to take you home afterwards and monitoring while in the hospital, not to mention the presence of an anesthesiologist or nurse anesthetist to supervise the treatment itself. Some of you might think that you prefer colonoscopy because you think it more effective. But as a matter of fact, the scientific literature does not show that one mode of colonoscopy, this might be something to prioritize. Another kind of cancer screening it might be useful to think about is cervical cancer screening, if you have a cervix and have not had a hysterectomy, which has been shown to be one of the most effective cancer mortality reducers. Some might say, however, that cancer screening is less important to a given, given individual, that is you reading this, than to a population. In other words, cancer screening is done often from a public health perspective. Public health seeks to ensure the greatest health for the greatest num number, or depending on what philosophy you subscribe to, the greatest equality in health, or health for the most vulnerable. On the other hand, you can legitimately claim as your greatest priority your own health and what matters to you. That is what makes the individual's health different from an algorithm. If you're poor, how should you optimize your health? In this question, an assumption is concealed that if you are poor, your health is not, that your health is under your complete control. However, as a matter of fact in history, we know that the American healthcare system is beset by various kinds of disparities, which are not under an individual's control, hence their systemic nature. To instruct you or anyone denied privilege to improve their lot assumes a level of individual agency that's simply not available to many. Nevertheless, assuming such agency is a cardinal feature of autonomy, which everyone would like to have for themselves. Thus, and nevertheless, we press on to ask the question, even given the unfairness of the system we are part of, and even given our lack of resources to pursue the optimal care that is our due, how can we make things work in the best way possible without breaking the bank on our health care alone? There are many examples of overuse in our health care system. Though much attention has been paid to it recently, by turning the overuse problem on its head, we can address how those of us with least resources can approach the best health. The first point I make here is that one should avoid over-the-counter preparations which promise health promotion without any evidence. And I'll say, not in the written language, but in colloquial language, that supplements and vitamins like these drive me up a well, and you'll, you'll hear why in a second. Um, you might have read the recent news that supplements sold in Walgreens, Walmarts, and other stores do not contain what they promise on the label. What you might also not know is that even the supplements which do include what's on the label don't help either. An intelligent, educated friend recently wrote me to ask what I thought about vitamins and what harms might be associated with them. I told her that as far as I knew, there weren't all that many significant harms. Great, she said, and to boost her immune system. There must be something to improve overall energy, something that can be bought or prescribed. There just isn't. And to the extent that these things cost money, not spending money on these things might improve the balance between your own personal economic situation and your health. If supplements and vitamins don't eat up a big chunk of your income, cigarettes might, or alcohol, or other recreational substances, like Oreos. The same questions about cost-effectiveness on a limited outcome can be applied to a lot of medical therapies. If you have high blood pressure, 
you might be taking a number of medications to treat hypertension, high blood pressure, medications prescribed by your doctor. While a recent systematic review does show that treatment for hypertension reduces the rates of heart attack, stroke, and death, even in mildly high blood pressure, less than 160 over 100, treatment can encompass multiple forms, from medication to exercise to change of diet. Any one of them might be able to treat your mild blood pressure favorably, as we, had, as we have discussed in that chapter. There's a chapter about blood pressure in the book. Yet we don't know which treatment best combines for you as an individual price and effectiveness, cost effectiveness, as the economists call it. There is a scientific paper from a couple of decades ago which compares cost effectiveness of various medication regimens for high blood pressure. But this is different from knowing whether, in the long run, a medicine, diet change, or exercise will cost less money. Such considerations can be important for every condition and every treatment, how much they cost you and how much they might cost you in the future. These questions are relevant to every disease we address in this book, but they are also relevant to larger issues about living your life, which are not, which are not necessarily fitted to the frame of medical decision-making. For example, will daily exercise, even given the inconvenience and possible conflict with other life responsibilities, be economically feasible in the long run while maintaining your health? This goes back to a larger discussion, which has gone on for years in the philosophical and healthcare literature about the difference between health and wellness. Just to mention, this is also relevant to current discussions in public affairs. We would like to know, or some would like to know, whether our candidates for one office or another are healthy. So here I'm going to talk a little bit about what it means to be healthy. Do we seek the absence of disease or the fulfillment of all our capabilities in life? When we see healthcare professionals or embark on, on initiatives to improve our health, do we seek merely that, a lack of sickness, or a complete global level of function? To answer a question with real attention to what you as an, as an individual want, we should realize that such a question overlaps with the difficulties of achieving optimal health in the context of decreased resources. If you define health as a complete global wellness, then if you are poor or a part of a class affected by systematic disparities, then it might be unrealistic to aspire to such a goal until the healthcare system or the entire political system is realigned towards greater equality. Telling ourselves to aspire towards such a greater state of wellness implies perhaps unrealistically and even condescendingly, that we can somehow counteract the disadvantages of our situation and leap fully formed into a better life. The person who just doesn't have enough money to make ends meet, who can't afford money for their medications, who must choose between going to work and paying for a doctor's appointment, who does not control their work environment and its impact on their health, how are they supposed to approach wellness in the sense of a comprehensive approach to their own existence? but we can consider such a situation from another angle. If we can't be expected to jump clear by dint of self-activation from economic or social difficulties imposed from without by systematic inequalities, we can use our situation to shed light on what health interventions might actually matter for us. If we have limited access to resources, whether money, time, organization, control over our own work or family schedule, how can we best invest them to achieve global wellness? This question is difficult to answer, 
and might be better approached by philosophers than patients or doctors. Given that we have finite money and time and limited opportunities, how should we structure our lives so that health is optimized? Do we want to maximize the number of years that we live or the quality of those years? Do we care most about reducing pain or making sure that we can live the way we want? That is, maintaining our function, however we would define that. There's a large and growing field of research to address these questions relating to patient-related outcomes. That's the term. This, this research is afflicted by the same problems which beset all health-related research that tries to address real-world issues, definitional issues, and issues of generalizability. Definitional, that is, how does one measure what outcomes are important to people? There are a number of indices, that is, measures, out there, but they all measure slightly different things in slightly different ways. Generalizability, that is, people are different, and we, patients, people, have different interests and needs. Any study is likely to address only a limited number of outcomes in particular categories of people. While philosophers spend a lot of energy trying to design or recommend the best way to live, it is unlikely that a given individual will be able to ask their doctor for an optimum life design to make their global wellness as high as possible. Nevertheless, even in the absence of such incontrovertible priorities, we can identify some general guidelines which people can follow, continuing the advice that we have been giving in this chapter. For example, avoiding tobacco, well, generally, an amount of alcohol consumption can cause pleasure, as Epicureans of all times have realized, but more consumption can also increase the risk of high blood pressure, heart disease, and some cancers. Some illicit substances are widely recognized as deleterious to health, cocaine and heroin, and others, while not free from harm, are becoming more widely used as part of the spectrum of substances that can make life more pleasurable. Stronger still is the evidence behind the benefits of exercise, of meditation for anxiety and depression, and a diet rich in fruits and vegetables. I'm not making these recommendations in the voice of a clinical epidemiologist who can ensure you, with more precision than long-term reliability, that changing the diet this way or that, or adapting this or that exercise program can reduce your risk of heart disease by so-and-so percent. No, I'm making the claim that such life activities can increase happiness, are cost-effective, and don't appear to have any deleterious health effects. There are pre precious few things that are pleasurable and won't cause harm to our health, and this is one attempted list. But with regard to the systemic problems of our healthcare system, most attention have, has been paid to disparities, which refers to differences in quality, cost, or access to care based on membership in one group or another. In the American context, this most often refers to the experience of African Americans and other minorities. In particular, the African-American experience framed by slavery, institutional violence, and racism. A multitude of fixes have been proposed to remedy disparities. Health disparities have rightly become a priority of our national health care system, to the extent we have one. I'm, I'm not going to, I'll remind you of the joke about the Holy Roman Empire. It was neither holy nor Roman nor an empire. Um, so our national health care system is not national nor a system nor all that caring. But, however, possibly the most wide-ranging possible solution recently proposed for disparities in society at large and the most virally distributed was the call by writer Ta-Nehisi Coates for reparations to African Americans to redress the harms of institutional racism. Coates, of course, was not the originator of this idea, 
but he has recently brought it back into wide consideration. So it is hobbled by numerous difficulties in theoretical conception and practical consideration, and is likely not to meet with any success in the short term on the legislative front. It can provide food for thought regarding potential ways to make the healthcare system work for the poor and disadvantaged. Reparations are just another means of income redistribution, giving support to those whose society which is potentially impracticable. Healthcare reparations would be a more delimited and potentially more practical initiative. How would redistributing healthcare resources work, and does it even make sense? The first question is whether spending more or expending more healthcare resources, in the language of the economist, leads to better healthcare outcomes. This is surprisingly controversial. The past half decade, corresponding to the drafting, debate, legislation, implementation, and legal challenges to the Affordable Care Act, has coincided with sustained attention to the cost of health care in the United States. Whether such cost constitutes waste, and if so, which parts of health care are wasted exactly? This is not just a systematic problem relevant to the economy of the United States as a whole, but to our own personal economies as well. Even if we have health insurance, we still see some fraction of the cost. Even if we don't pay out of pocket or with our credit card for the health care procedures and treatments we are recommended, there is still a significant amount of copay or an opportunity cost for the time we must take away from other things. Given that health care costs in the United States are high and its quality compared to those of other health care systems is low, it has been proposed that much of this cost is due to waste. This claim has been buttressed by the maps of the Dartmouth Healthcare Atlas, which reaches a surprising conclusion. Healthcare services are provided unequally across the United States in a distribution that doesn't seem to make much sense. Or rather, if medicine is being provided in an evidence-based way to maximize effectiveness, one is hard-pressed to understand why bariatric surgery should be performed seven times more often in Huntington, West Virginia than Winston-Salem, North Carolina. Thus, it might make sense to say that the disproportionate cost-quality ratio of the American healthcare system is due to waste, too much spent for the wrong reasons. That, hypo that hypothesis appears plausible when examined at the level of the healthcare system as a whole. But studies on a different level, that of hospitals and patients, show a more complicated story. Some, some studies show no link between hospitals which spend more money on care and the quality of the care provided, patients' mortality, and the outcomes of various diseases. However, a recent comparison in California indicated that hospitals which spent more money on care delivered better outcomes, including in such common diseases such as heart failure. A recent complicated study done by healthcare economists based on data in New York State seems to indicate that patients from the same zip code delivered by ambulance to different hospitals, that, that such ambulance assignments, it turns out, are nearly random, do better if they are brought to a hospital with higher costs. These data are confusing, and unfortunately, they don't lend themselves to any one simple answer about the connection between systemic costs and your health. Given the waste that's obvious in the healthcare system, present in many instances of overtreatment and overuse, I personally find it difficult to believe that selecting the highest cost doctor or hospital will in general lead to better care for you. More likely is that there are certain common conditions for which a certain minimal level of service, quality, and care is necessary for proper treatment. And a cost differential might indicate whether a healthcare facility reaches that level. The question is, how do you know 
whether your doctor and hospital get there in order to maximize the use of your limited resources. There are various means of public reporting, that is, websites that can compare one doctor to another or one hospital to another. The most reliable information is available through two sources, either the federal government, which has mandated that doctors and hospitals provide certain kinds of information precisely for the purpose of such comparisons, or various journalistic concerns, which, taking a different tack, have tried to provide useful information to patients and other people who interact with the healthcare system for the sake of transparency. Transparency about how much doctors and hospitals spend compared to the average in our categories, whether they have accept pharmaceutical money, and whether they have been involved in legal disputes. Um, the most prominent uh, organization like this is called ProPublica. You can Google them if you like. And suffice it to say that the quality of their data and their methodology is controversial. Um, whether, but I think it's an open question whether or not it's any worse than what we have now. The different kinds of public reporting speak to different ways in which the healthcare system can lead to financial ruin. And while such ruin might not be frequent, it might be a way in which we can tailor our expectations of healthcare services to the evidence comparing doctors and hospitals to each other. A hospital which has had many patient complaints might not be worth our while economically. A doctor who has seen few patients from our ethnic group might not understand our limitations of sensitivity. I wish this chapter were ending on a note of clearer advice or more straightforward evidence that among poor people or those with fewer resources, a particular course of action would lead to better health. The clearest conclusion that can be drawn is this. A certain minimal level of access to health care improves health. Some doctors or hospitals which provide accepted treatment for acute and chronic conditions. We can speculate that waste is due to treatments that don't lead to proportional benefits, rather than necessary treatments for common conditions that must be delivered to reach the minimal standard of care. We thus reach a common conclusion. Since poor people and other disadvantaged groups, such as African Americans, are systematically denied equality of care by the U.S. healthcare system, there are certain initiatives that we as individuals can take having to do with avoiding costly and untried interventions which do not improve our health, limiting expensive and health-destroying habits, and trying to find hospitals and physicians which meet our needs while limiting unnecessary costs. Such initiatives on our part can only do so much to redress the disparities of our system. And thus, as others do, I consider it our duty as people seeking optimal health to advocate for a system which serves poor and rich equally, black and white, with the same attention to their health. Advocacy is difficult for all of us, and I say that as someone whose profession implicates me in the very inequities of the healthcare system. You would think that as a provider, I would be involved in such advocacy. I can only say that I wish I were more effective in this regard. I hope that some of the examples I have given here might provide ways to think about our, not just our own health in the context of economics, but the health of others as well. Thank you. Happy to take questions. Um, uh, yes, um, <laughs> uh, yes, I think uh, single payer, a single-payer system would probably 
lead, I would probably um, iron out a lot of the inequities in the system. Um, I think it's not a panacea. Um, you need, from what I understand, single-payer systems cost more at the front end to reach savings at the back end. So the question is how, in transitioning to such a system, it's not just a political question of how you get people to agree to it, but how do you pay for it? Um, and then we also know there are examples of single-payer systems which are not fully funded, like Canada's. So Canada has achieved very good results with its healthcare system, um, but it's not as much better than the American system as, it, as the United States system as it should be because there have been appropriation and funding difficulties due to various governments. So, um, so in general, yes, but in the actuality, not necessarily as much as we would like.
helps to explain why health disparities, although they've slightly improved, are still very significant. Uh, as to, you know, I, I would rephrase your question and use a term that people use, which is distrust, healthcare system distrust. Um, so there's a question about ac there's a question about access, right? If you're not going to go to a doctor if you don't have a doctor, or if you don't have insurance, right? Or if you can't make it to your doctor because you're working. So that's one sort of bucket of reasons. Another bucket of reasons is things cost too much, right? And a third bucket of reasons is you're worried that your doctor might not get you or might not treat you fairly. Um, you know, I work at Johns Hopkins, great place. Happens to be racist, you know, in large part. Still, probably better than it was. Big issue, right? And I, if this comes as a surprise to anybody in the room, we could talk later. You know, don't mean to rock anyone's world here, but um, but it's definitely an issue, right? Uh, so. You know, for example, I, there are, I've seen patients whose last name is Lax, right? And whether they're related or not, I didn't go into it with them, but you can understand why someone from that family or anyone African-American in Baltimore might have justified healthcare system distrust. So, um, so that's how I understand it. And how do you impact such mistrust? Well, you try to, it goes back to the question about patient engagement, right? You bring patients to the table, right? You say, um, so we had a conference about shared decision-making which means patients and doctors or nurses making decisions together. That was on June 1st. That was at Johns Hopkins. And our, our keynote speaker, or one of them, was uh, Mr. D. Watkins, who um, wrote this New York Times bestselling book called um, The Cook-Up, um, about his storied career as a drug dealer and then not being a drug dealer. But what he talked about at our conference was how many people that he knows dislike our institution intensely. And I don't think it's anything specially about Hopkins. It might be, but I imagine there's distrust about Maryland and other institutions in town or in our country. So, but you have to respond to that means bringing people to the table and acknowledging that and saying what we can do better. Um, you know, there are people who say, well, the answer is we need to blow it up and, and, and rebuild it, right? I, I'm not a believer in revolution, right? I didn't vote for Bernie. So, so that's, I mean, I, I, that, that is an argument to have, but, but anyway, I think the solution is engagement and slow change, and I'm an incrementalist, and that's a long answer to a short question. Very good question, Kelly. So I'm not ignoring you. I was just having Tracy going around because I don't see people well, but that's, so I'm, I'm leaving it to her. Sorry. So you're, so you're, so you're, so you're good, right? Right, 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 right. right. Yeah, that's hard. Right, 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 right. I, that's a great question. In fact, I was just meeting with some colleagues today about improving patient-centered care at, at Johns Hopkins, and we have we have great intentions and good ideas um, and institutional uh, um, drive. Uh, but you know, but the question is, you don't want to make it yet another thing that you're pointing a finger at doctors saying do that, do this thing too, because there's some as you as you point out, there are pressures on doctors. Um, the computer's always reminding you to do this or that or the other thing. A lot of those reminders are not based on great evidence. So you're sort of impinged upon by, by people telling you to do stuff on all sides, right? And you have to think about which is the right thing to do for which patient. And so that, that's a, it's a continuing source of conflict. And that's why, you know, physician burnout is a thing. That is to say, it's an it's a important issue. Um, 
say you'd like to make it easier to, for doctors and nurses to do their jobs, and that means creating a workplace where people feel free to talk about their frustrations and paying people well, and, or, or paying the people that are too well paid maybe less, and people that aren't that well paid like nurses more, right? And, and giving people the ability to take off work when they're sick or depressed. And so that, it's, it's all, and then when people are, you know, enabled to be their best selves in their workplace, they can work towards societal change. So it's hard. Um, yeah, it's a hard thing. So I, I think, and they, they have a consciousness that other specialists might not have. Um, so I wish I had, yeah, I don't know, I wish I had an answer. It, this is sort of a capacity building work in social change and activism stuff, which is not my primary bread and butter. Um, so, but definitely a white hat kind of question. Business for me too. I get paid for my work. No, that's that's just what you know. Right. Yeah. Of my knowledge. 
That's a good question. Not for you. to a perennial question, and I guess the first, the, begin, the way to answer that starts with, you know, thanking you for the compliment, but realizing it's not my model, right? So my immediate predecessors in this model, you know, one of my mentors at NYU is a, was a student of George Engel who, who came up with something called the biopsychosocial model, which sort of is a pushback against the biomedical model, reading that a, meaning that a person and all their health issues is um, a person with a, a mental life a person also embedded in the social milieu. Um, so that's, that's that, and that model is 40, 50 years old, so, it's, so you know, everything has their antecedents. Uh, as to, and I think time is a perennial concern, and in my first book, Talking to Your Doctor, I talk about how there's a literature about using time wisely, and you could have a, a, a five-minute visit, which is great, and a 30-minute visit, which is terrible. So that's part of it, using, using time wisely. Um, and then part of it is, is incentivizing. So paying doctors to do the right things and not paying them to do the wrong things. And so there's payment models that are being, you know, payment reform is, is, a, is definitely an active issue now. And that means paying people to do less stuff and paying people to do more thinking. Um, so that's part of it. So I think it's a many-pronged thing. Um, and also that means sort of uh, improving the customer experience. I hate, it, I hate referring to patients as customers, but some of the customer experience stuff is useful. So that means not wasting people's time but making them wait around, right? And not making them fill out forms that you don't really need because it's on the computer. And and so, so there's a way to, I think, move, use things more efficiently. So there's many uh, possible routes to, to make things work. tricky thing, 
when you say you should speak up because people don't want to speak up and you don't want to feel like you're the, you don't want to be too squeaky a wheel, right? kind of, um, you don't want to make people responsible for something they're not responsible for, right? The patient is not, the patient does not have a job of being the doctor too. The patient's supposed to be the patient, right? Um, so that's all part of that. And then, and then engagement in healthcare metrics implies that the metrics are the right ones, which is not the case right now, right? So we're, doctors are moved, are being in, uh, told to, to fulfill metrics, which sometimes are helpful and sometimes are not. And it's not clear. Sometimes things, some of these things work, like there's a lot of incentive to keep people from being hospitalized again in short order after they were first discharged from the hospital. And it looks like very slowly some of that is making a difference. But there's plenty of other metrics that make no sense and waste people's time. So, like I say, I, like I say all the time to other people, I'm for the good metrics and, and I'm against the bad ones. So, um, but engaging people is definitely important, right? You want to give people information and help them engage in informed choice. You know, my personal preference as a provider, as a doctor, is you know, time is limited and resources are limited and attention is limited. Like. Like why not? Why not just ask the person what they want in their life, as opposed to like dealing with all the BS metrics that don't make any sense, right? I mean, there's sort sometimes there's overlap, right? Like if you have diabetes and we want to control your diabetes, so so you you know avoid various um, blood vessel disease related stuff, that makes sense. Uh, helping people stop smoking, that makes sense. Sometimes fussing around with numbers doesn't make so much sense in the in the individual patient's context. So that's sort of